I am a Christ follower. One who seeks to, uh, to live out the commandments of Christ. And to love obediently. I'm a Christian who's received Christ and his promise of eternity. And I'm one that's dependent on his grace and his mercy. I'm a man who, who lives in a world that's surrounded by the confusion of many voices. Calling me to be that which I am not. For I am born of God, a new creation called to love and called to surrender. My decisions may not always be the best. But my heart is always true. My genuine authenticity doesn't always mean that I'm right. But it does mean that I'm always trying. I'm a Christ follower, seeking to live out the life that God has called me to and to share it with those around me. This is my heart. I've been taught and I've learned from the early stages of life that God is good, that there's a right way to live and that we are to follow in that, in that right way. I've been told that there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end leads to death. The reality of darkness and light in my life has been very evident. I have suffered death in my life, but I can testify to the fact that I have also received new life. New life in Christ. I now walk with the one who lived to die for me. This is my heart. He died to give me a chance. To give me hope that will never let me go no matter what. And as he holds me and as I walk with him, he guides my steps. And when I fall and I get scraped up and bruised and a lot of times broken, he picks me up and brushes me off and gets rid of the mess and then he holds on to my hands and he starts me walking again. I want to walk like Christ, but I know that it's impossible to walk exactly like he did because I can't live sinlessly, but I can sin less as I live. While I can't take the exact steps that he did, I, I... I can't live a blameless life like he did. I know, I know that I can take every step that I do with him, even my falls and my stumbles and my recoveries. That's, that's my heart. For his love for me is great. I thought that I once knew the definition of love. thought I once knew what it meant to, to experience God's love, but I, I would always attach it to something that was reciprocal in nature. We, we tend to do that with love. We forget about the sacrifice that is involved. I thought that, that merely experiencing God was what Christianity was all about. Experiencing his love, being encouraged by it. But as I've grown up and as I've matured and this love has been perfected in me, I realize that it's, God's love is more than an experience, but it's a condition and a characteristic of my life. This is my heart. God's love for me was brought down through Christ, the very Son of God, who because of his great love for me left his place in heaven to be born of man, to die for man. And what he asks of me in return is to believe, to have faith. Believe in me by the way that you live your life. When I live this way, when I let my faith dictate my actions and his love be my motivation, then I'm able to overcome this world. I know that scripture says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. 
But I also firmly believe as well that while I have assurance of what I hope for, our faith does not rest in what is to come, but it is established in what has already been done. Faith is summed up uh, by three things in this, in this letter that John is writing to the church in 1 John. Our obedience, our love, and our belief. It's a very practical letter that he's writing to a church that's in a state of confusion. I believe that maybe even in our time the church is in a state of confusion. Some have been here for eons and they feel that they've done their time and now they can sit back and coast until Jesus calls them home. Others feel that they're not yet at an age where they need to get serious about Christ. I have a lot of living left to do. Why would I want to give up the fun times? Right now they're living for themselves. We hear sermons from all kinds of ministers that touch here and there on the Bible, but they do little to practically show us how to live with Jesus every day. He wants us to live fiercely obedient lives. The book of 1 John addresses all of these issues, the obedience, the love, the belief. It addresses the fact that that some people are, are listening to different teachings. They're being swayed by the false teachers or maybe even the world that's telling them that there's another way to live. John is encouraging the church to stay focused because this church, too, was confused. They were changing Scripture to fit cultural expectations. How will this best be received by the people instead of how will this best change the people? This letter that John writes actually to church leadership is the assurance of victory. It's encouraging them to stay the course, to stand firm as a call to persevere, and I think it's very relevant for us today as well. Reading through John's letters to the church, I believe that this, as I said, is the most practical of his letters. It's what we can take the most from. It offers us encouragement and direction in the most relevant and simple ways. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. Starting in verse 1 is where we're going to read, and it says that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life. And this eternal life is in his Son. 
Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So as we take this letter step by step, much probably like the first reader would take it, uh, there are things that we need to consider. And the first thing that, that jumps out to me is that we can, we can rest in our faith, but our faith should never be at rest. We can rest in our faith, but our faith should never be at rest. We can have assurance in the love of God. We know that we are born of Him, as John says. It's a love like any other. It's a love that, that, that offers us new life and new beginning. And John says that everyone, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And he's drawing our attention to, to the first of the three things that I mentioned, obedience. He goes and he talks about our obedience. He says, if you love God, if you've been born of God, then you will keep his commandments. You will be obedient. You will obey. Our faith, our hope rests in the fact that we have been born of God. And obedience is the evidence that we are God's children. We are his sons and his daughters because we listen to him. We follow his instruction. Our faith is not only secure, though, in that, but it is also at work. It is active. Our faith is displayed in the way that we live our lives. Now, I say that we can rest in our faith, but our faith should never be at rest. And I think I have to touch on rest just a little bit because it is a biblical concept to rest, to take rest, to be renewed, to be refreshed. We should be assured of the hope that we have and be able to rest in that promise, but our faith needs to be active. It needs to be shown. It needs to be evident. Christ retreated and took rest. That's important for us too. And the next... uh, there are some words that, that are pretty important to take notice of that, that talk about our, uh, our activeness in our faith and not just our peaceful security. The word believes uh, is present tense in this letter. I know a lot of people are like, well, why does that even matter? Well, grammar matters, or so I'm told. This word believes is present tense, so that means it's happening. It's, it's, it's active in your life. It's It's ongoing. We have a tendency in our Christian bubble to be quiet in our faith. Yes, your relationship with God is personal, but it's not meant to be private or hidden. It's meant to be evident. Our lives should should give testimony to what we believe. And it should be used to encourage others. John states that if you love God, if you're his sons and daughters, and you'll keep his commands, then your life will show it. Remember that love for God is not just an experience, but it's a condition and a characteristic of your life. Eli stated it so well this morning. He knows that this event in his life that we celebrated is not the culmination of his journey, but it's just the first step in the process. He knows there's much more to come. He's not arrived, but he's starting out, and it's now time for his faith to become active and visible so that he can influence the lives of others. Remember that John has stated that that we're to walk as Jesus walked. In the earlier chapters, he talks about walking as Jesus did to have true fellowship with God. And that may mean that sometimes we walk in a way that we wouldn't normally walk. 
that we do some things that we wouldn't normally do. Obedience means that we take seriously this simple call of Christ that he, he gave to so many, specifically to 12, when he said, follow me. Follow me. And to be obedient to that means that we recognize that Jesus is saying, don't just recognize who I am and then go about your life saying that you've experienced me, but why don't you try letting your experience of me be your life? Our faith in action means that we sometimes will have to do things that we don't want to do. Sometimes we're going to have to say no to things that we want to say yes to, and sometimes we're going to have to say yes to things that we want to say no to. We rest in the assurance of our hope, and that assurance of our hope affects our attitude in the present. And because of this hope that we have, the assurance that we live in, we want to live obediently, and we also want to radically influence the world for Christ. Now, the world that we are to influence exists outside of the four walls of 2845 Beaumont Drive. That's the address here. The world that we are to influence is outside of these walls. This is not the world we are to influence. We are the ones who are to be out there doing the influencing instead of reveling in our relaxation and comfort. We are to be getting uncomfortable when we keep the commands of Christ, when we take seriously this call to follow him and to walk as he did, then he's going to take us places that we wouldn't normally go on our own. If you love God and you want to show that love for God, then you will keep his commands. We often wouldn't find Jesus preaching in in the temple most of the time, waiting for people to come to him. Instead, we would find him on hillsides. In the, in the city center, maybe in a boat. Oftentimes we would find him in the, in the homes of sinners. Where Pharisees and the people who thought they were more religious would not even set foot because of the image that it may portray to other people. What kind of image does your faith lead you to portray? When I was younger, I worked at a bowling alley for about 10 years. I'm not ashamed to say that I loved my job at the bowling alley. Not just because I got to bowl whenever I wanted to, um, but I was a, I'm a people person. Uh, I got to interact with, with lots of people, lots of different kinds of people at the bowling alley. I wa- we were from a, a small town. If you know Sullivan, it's kind of small. Um, most people knew who I was, and that doesn't mean they knew who I was because I was a good kid. It just meant that they knew who I was because they were supposed to be watching me. But I, I loved working at the bowling, and I hung out with friends that uh, we're going to call them less than perfect Christians, or maybe not even Christ followers at all. I ran with the same group of guys all throughout my high school years, and, and we would sit and talk in various places for hours and we, we had nicknames for each other. They, they knew that I went to church anytime the door was open. They didn't have a problem with that. I never tried to force anything on them, but for some reason they gave me the nickname the Pope. Nobody calls me that anymore. Nobody calls me that anymore, okay? 
But I would sit with them for hours, and, and oftentimes I would get off work at the bowling alley and hold on to your seats a little bit. I would meet them at a local bar. I would order the best drink in the world, Mountain Dew in a can. Mountain Dew in a can. I, was, did that raise questions as to my motives? If someone would drive by and see my vehicle there, would they wonder, I wonder what he's doing there? Likely, but only to those who were out to judge me and question my faith would that raise questions. To those that I shared conversations with and to those that I shared life with, I was able to gain their acceptance and their trust. I would rather be trusted than judged. I would rather the evidence of my life be louder than the questions concerning my motives. I don't want a faith that rests. I want a faith that is active and is willing to go the places that nobody else is willing to go. And those who questioned Jesus and the places that he would go, and those who watched him so closely would often ask, well, why do you eat with sinners? And Jesus told them, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but it's the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinner to repentance. And that being said, I'm not saying that you have to go and hang out in a bar every night to be influential for Christ, for your faith to be, to be evident. But, but how would it change your witness if you started sharing meals with people that you knew were not Christ followers? If you had friends that you knew didn't have a relationship with Jesus, what if you ate lunch with them instead of eating lunch with the same group of Christian friends week after week after week? How would it change the evidence of your faith if instead of coasting through life, being catered to by the church, you started being that witness on the hillside or in the center of the city or in your neighborhood or your workplace or at your school. We, we can rest in the assurance of our faith, but our faith should not be at rest. It should be active. We should be influencing those that are closest to us with the gospel of Christ. We should not be stagnant or self-serving. John is writing to the church and he's saying, be strong in your faith and the commands that you know you are to follow. And when you do this, you'll be able to stand against the false teachings of the world. A lot of this letter from first, in 1 first John is talking about being able to recognize the false teaching from the true testimony of Jesus. When people see us living out this true testimony, then there is no question. And John is saying, if your faith is active, if you're obeying his commands, and you're influential for the kingdom, then you'll be able to stand against those things. It's not only assurance, but it's action. And we take action because of the victory that's already been won. Our faith does not rest in what is to come. It is established in what has already been done. And the world is, in a, is at war for our souls. We'll say it that way. There's a, there's a battlefield for our souls, and sometimes... It's going to seem impossible. It is going to seem impossible for us to overcome. Defeating the world is not something that we can do on our own. John is addressing this. Defeating sin is not something that we are capable of on our own. And John is reminding us that, that we overcome not through struggle, but by surrender. We overcome by surrender. And surrender is hard for us. It's very difficult because we like to live under our own power and our own strength. We like to live 
our way. But like I said, struggling through life won't bring you victory. Only surrender will bring you new life. And John says that if you've been born of God, if you're sons and daughters, then you have overcome the world. Not that you will overcome eventually, but that you have already overcome the world. The world is John's term for human society that is organized without God. It's a place in which uh, desire drives lives. Wants. Selfish ambition. John's language in these verses is drawing our attention to this battlefield, to this war, where the world is fighting for our hearts and God is longing for us to surrender our hearts to Him. And verse 4 is pretty crucial uh, in this text. It says that, Your love is evidenced by your obedience. You love me, you'll keep my commandments. My commandments are not burdensome, he says. So he's he's shifted from from obedience, as we talk about the the surrendering, uh, to love. We don't surrender to something that we don't love, that we don't trust. That's not a, a a big part of our lives. Faith is our victory. We surrender to the love that God has for us and take it as a characteristic and condition of our lives and not just a mere experience. When we hear the word struggle, though, we we tend to cringe because we think that if we're struggling in life, if we're facing hardships and impossible odds, then it's like the favor of God has been removed from us. Maybe God's presence is withdrawing, but in reality, when we surrender we are really trusting that his plan is unfolding regardless of our circumstances or our situation. When I, when I think of impossible times in my life when, when I felt the world crashing in around me, it's because I was struggling to get out of a mess on my own instead of reaching for the hand that God was extending to me to pull me out. The Israelites were probably the most disobedient and stubborn group of people around. Even as they were being led to a promise that God had for them, they were disobedient. They made mistakes. Maybe they even doubted. And they they came to an obstacle, a struggle, in, in a huge body of water that they knew they had to cross to reach the promise that God had for them. And I'm sure they thought, well, we're going to have to struggle and swim through this whole thing. And maybe stood there and wondered, how how are we going to do this? It it won't be long before our struggle overtakes us. Either we're going to be overtaken by the waters, or we're going to be overtaken by our enemy that's not far behind. But they trusted. They trusted, and God split the sea so they could walk through. They turned to Him for deliverance. They surrendered to him and handed the struggle over to him and trusted him to see them through. Their victory did not come through the water, but through surrendering. And I believe that that God's plans are the same for us as well. Three times in successive sentences, John repeats the phrase, overcomes the world. In the first instance, it is a, a definitive act. It's a definitive act, and John is specifically addressing the false teachings. He says, if you're obedient to me, if you love me and you surrender to me, then you will be able to recognize and turn away from the false teachings. You will be able to overcome the world, the culture that is trying to pull you away from the true 
testimony. So for us, this means that if we are, we're born of God, if we recognize Him, then we will be able to reject the things in our life that are trying to pull us from Him, that are trying to distract us, that are trying to cloud our thoughts. That's the victory that John is referring to, the moralization of the gospel and the negating of Christ as the true Son of God. The other two occurrences are verbs, and they're in the present tense. And they, they describe the continuous victory that a Christian should enjoy, should live in, should celebrate every day. We enjoy it now. The early church struggled due to a little thing called legalism. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law liked to add a whole lot of things to the law in order to make it burdensome for people to, to follow. They were the elite so they could make these, these additions. But living under legalism is not at all what God intended for our relationship with Him to look like. That's not a relationship of love. His relationship says, love me and keep my commands, and by that faith you will overcome the world. Love me, walk with Jesus, and you will overcome. Believe in me and live for my Son, and the victory is yours. And like the Pharisees, we can be legalistic. We can be very legalistic. We like to point out the law that we have to follow. We like to say, you have to live this way in order to be accepted by us, by me. John has already touched on the subject of love in this letter. We are often quick to judge before we love. John's saying what we need to do is, is love people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ, not wait until their lives have been changed by Jesus to love them. We're not supposed to show them a list of rules, and we're not supposed to make their journey to Christ a struggle, but sometimes we do. We're called to love them, and when we truly love God and obediently follow Him, then we will love others with the same love that he loves us. His love will be evident in us. His commands will not be burdensome, but we must love first. He who overcomes is not the one who keeps the commands perfectly, but the one who overcomes is the one who believes in Jesus and loves as Jesus loved and loves. So we've talked about obedience. We've talked about love. Lastly, John talks about belief. Where is this established? What has been done to make this foundation secure for us? Where, where is our true faith found? And John tells us that life is not found in the decisions that we make, but in the decision that was made for us. And what I mean by that is that the foundation on which we stand has been established long before you made a decision to receive Christ. God made a decision to send his son to live and to die for you long before you made a decision to follow him. Your life is not based on the decisions that you make, but on that decision that was made for you. He's stating that three things testify to who Christ is. The church was confused. So he wants to remind them of the testimony of God concerning Jesus. And there are three things that testify to it. The water, which was his obedience and baptism. 
the blood which was his crucifixion and death, and there was the Spirit of God that was upon him during all of these things. See, men were testifying that Jesus was not who he said he was. Do we have people now that do that? That say Jesus is not who he said that he was? John is stating that that even though you may listen to the testimony of men concerning Jesus, the testimony of God is far greater. And we must accept this testimony or else we call God a liar. Who the Bible says Jesus is is the testimony that we are to live, love, and believe on. We can't find life when it comes to our decisions based on our own logic or our own way of thinking. Eternal life, that is. We cannot attain eternity by our own efforts, but instead we attain eternity by allowing this belief to be displayed in obedience and love. Our belief is displayed by these first two things, the obedience, being born of God and keeping His commands, and love. But even in our most God-centered decisions, we are self-serving sometimes. We can't escape the reality that the natural tendency of man is to live for self and not for other people, and we can't grasp the idea of doing for somebody else before we do for us. It's foreign to us. Our culture doesn't teach that. We want to live for ourselves. Our decisions, however, become life-giving when we make them based on the decision that was made for us. John says that the testimony is this concerning Christ, that God gave us eternal life, and that eternal life is in His Son, Jesus. And whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. The world, the false teachers, they were swaying the church. And the purpose of this letter that John is writing is to remind them of their obedient call. We're pulled a lot of different directions in daily life. And we too need to be reminded of our obedient call, that we are to love God and that love is to be displayed in our lives. And it seems so simple when we say it that way. It seems so easy. So easy for us to live for the one who gave himself for us, but sometimes our decisions don't reflect Jesus alive in us. The sad reality is that we allow our decisions to define our lives. We allow our poor decisions to define our lives, and that's not how God defines our life. Our life is defined by the acceptance of Christ and our desire to passionately pursue Him. If you have made a stupid decision, would you raise your hand? If you need to raise both, that's fine. We've all made stupid decisions, but the mistake that we make is whenever we allow that stupid decision to define who we are. If you've allowed that to happen, then you need to stop. You're called to a life that's way better than that, a life that is fuller and a life that you can build for yourself on a firm foundation, not allowing the poor decisions to, addict, to dictate your future. But you need to say, I'm surrendering this struggle to you. I'm surrendering this over to you. 
If we say that we are allowing our poor decisions to dictate our future, then we are saying that God's decision to redeem us is not good enough. That's legalism. We're living according to the rules instead of living by the love. Not only is the life that God promises us through His Son full and not burdensome, but it is also eternal. That's the testimony that is given. There are three things that are taught in these closing verses about this life that we find in Christ. It's undeserved, it's only through Jesus, and it's eternal. It's undeserved only through Christ and eternal. The Greek word for eternal is ionios. And that literally means belonging to the age or the age to come. Which means you're living this eternal life now. And you will continue in this eternal life in the age to come. It's not something that you just look forward to. It's something that you're experiencing when you are born of God. A decision has been made for us. The decision was that Christ would leave heaven, be born of man, live a life of obedience and love, and he would die on a cross to seal our eternity. Our decisions don't offer us life. It's only the decision that Christ made that offers us life. And if we choose to make our decisions based on his decision then our life will be lived displaying obedience, love, and belief. And faith will be our victory. John is writing to reaffirm the assurance that had been forgotten or had been confused by the false teachers or by the world. We too sometimes need a reminder of our assurance. And each week we celebrate in this reminder together when we come to the Lord's Supper, to communion. Not only do we celebrate that decision, but we also acknowledge that our faith does not rest in what is to come, but it is established in what has already been done. What we're celebrating with the observance of communion is victory. We worship through this time, and after we celebrate... uh, Through remembering, we're going to celebrate again through some singing, through some corporate worship. And this is a time whenever that comes for you to respond, uh, to come for prayer. Maybe even you need to make a decision today or to surrender a struggle. Maybe you need to make a decision just like Eli did. The next few moments are yours to reflect and quiet your heart. This time is yours to talk to God and ask Him to, to help you move from a, a place of, of merely resting in your faith to a place of action. Maybe you need to surrender that struggle. Maybe you need to change the way that you make decisions. But over these next few moments as we worship and as we reflect, this time is between you and the Father. Would you pray with me? God, just now we come to a time to quiet ourselves and come before you, a time to remember the sacrifice of Christ that we live in and the victory that has been established through his death, to remember what has been asked of us to come and to to celebrate together as, as one body, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus, his body that was given, his blood that was poured out to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. The decision that 
you made was to send him to earth for the purpose of dying. And that decision is where we find our life. So we come to give you thanks for that. And this may this be a time of renewal in our relationship with you and a time of confession and a time of celebration for the victory that has been won and that we share in through our faith. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.